1: It's Annie McManus here, delighted to have you with us on this episode. Change is what we talk about on this podcast and change we have learned can impact us in so many ways. We've repeatedly interviewed people on this podcast who have gone through big changes in their early life. Changes that were forced upon them and ended up impacting every connection, reaction, relationship they have for the rest of their life. The only way to stop the effects of that early change is to confront it and to explore it. And that is where healing begins. Art is healing. And making art about your own lived experience can, in itself, inspire change.
2: Connection is change. That moment you feel, oh, God, yes, someone gets that. Oh, God, they've been through that as well. That's a lovely feeling and moment of change. And I think also it's just seeing people, isn't it, on screen that you've not seen before, hearing from people you've not heard from before. That's always where the change is.
1: That is Sophie Willen, this week's guest on Changes, a double BAFTA winning actor and comedian, talking about making her sitcom Alma's Not Normal. Sophie grew up in Bolton. Her mum was a heroin addict, which meant that Sophie was brought up by her grandma and spent time in the foster care system as well. Her mum is now looked after in a medium secure mental health ward. When she was older, Sophie worked as an escort to help fund her career. Sophie has utilised her past in her shows on record and branded, selling out at the Edinburgh Fringe with national tours and a subsequent Radio 4 series, Most recently she earned two BAFTAs for the utterly unique BBC2 sitcom Alma's Not Normal which she wrote, produced and stars in. Alma's Not Normal is a semi-autobiographical comedy which focuses on Alma living in Bolton trying to make the most of what she has and dreaming of being an actress detailing the ups and downs of her relationships including with her mum, her grandma and her best friend played by the iconic Jade Adams. The show achieves that very difficult balance of being really funny whilst at the same time tackling serious issues like class, sexuality, prejudice, mental health, abuse and societal systems like social care. When Sophie won her first BAFTA she was watching the announcements on a laptop in a pink sparkly dress and did a lap of the garden screaming what the fuck over and over. Her speech on accepting her second BAFTA for female performance in a comedy was exceptional. You have to see it to understand it. So please go on YouTube, Sophie Willen BAFTA winning speech. You will not regret it. I think I've watched it about 20 times now. Sophie dedicated the award to her zebra print loving grandmother who died during the filming of Alma, which she talks about in this conversation. Sophie's currently working on the second series of Alma, but if you haven't seen the first, it has just been re-released on iPlayer for a month. Go check it out, you are in for a treat, you will not regret it. This is a conversation about Sophie's personal changes, but also changing systems, changing prejudices and change in the concept of normal. Please welcome Sophie Willen. Sophie Willen, hello! 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 It's lovely to have you. I feel strange seeing your face, having been watching all of Alma's Not Normal in the last three days, oh. and listening to the Radio 4 series. And you've got different colour hair now!
2: I do. I thought it'd make me a bit incognito from Alma. It's not worked I at bet. all. Because actually the voice is, I think, very clearly me. I think Boltonian. And the face. Yeah, you forget your face looks the same. <laughs> I mean, I thought, because I've looked a bit knackered this past year post-Alma, I thought, that and the blonde hair, yeah. the like having plastic
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. How are you with change? Do you like it?
2: Do you lean into it? Do you run away from it? It depends really, because I'm quite uh, funny about my own routine and my own way of being. When it comes to my home, I don't really like, I like to feel it's my own safe space and stuff. But then also, I love a bit of Feng Shui, so, you know, that's all about change, isn't it? A bit yeah. mixed, really. It's
1: changing perspective, isn't it? It's yeah. just like, so you still have your nice, safe space on your four walls, but it's a different perspective within that.
2: Yes. Yeah. Last week I had a, a big deadline. It was the perfect time to put garden furniture in the kitchen and have a living room space in the kitchen. That's what I was missing. That's what I've been missing my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> and just at the deadline as
1: well. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But to, to be honest, I've got a lot more done since I put that garden furniture in the I kitchen. Bet. It looks great. Okay, so you like routine? Um, I struggle to find it, but I do crave it. Once you're in it, you like. When it. I'm in it, but I, yeah. I struggle to get it, and it always feels like a battle I've been against my whole life, really. But at the minute, I've got a great routine. Yeah. Get up, take the dog to doggy daycare, come back, do my morning pages, which are the best thing. What's I a think, morning for page? Have you ever read that book, The Artist Wear, Julia Cameron? No. no. Oh, it's brilliant. I read it in my 20s and it did change my life. It's all about like, unlocking your creativity. But there's a few things she says you should do. Right. And one of them is doing morning pages where you just set an alarm and it's like a free write. You just write, don't take your hand off the page. But in her new book I bought recently, she says do it for 30 minutes, which is quite a long time. But mm. honestly, the thing's... That you kind of come to every day when you do these free writes, I find really helps with the writing process. This new book's called Seeking Wisdom, which is a bit more gaudy than her last book, but I'm actually quite up for it. I mean, to be it's honest. an aspirational title. Like, I, I'm, I'm down. Yeah, well, I always find it funny when you find yourself in the sort of self-help section of Waterstones, looking knackered and thinking, "What am I yeah. today?" And then you're grabbing for a book called Seeking Wisdom. I think it says a lot, you know. <laughs> And everybody around you in that section looks knackered, don't they? Yeah. They always look a bit, they're struggling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what are you working on? Just the second series of Alma. It right, it's took series, a surprisingly right. long time, mm. this series. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Well, I finished filming Alma at the end of August, I think it was. My grandma mm. had passed away at the beginning of filming. So, you know, I was editing scenes with her in it like there's a scene with alma's mum and grandmother having a meal and i was thinking god this is actually based on the last meal i had with them as a as a three there's yeah. yeah, so all sorts of things because a friend of mine died and then my uncle who was my grandma's brother who i was really close to all died within kind of a, a few months of each other and then also yeah. it was a fabulous time you know winning baftas and mm. red carpets but quite intense you know so there was just a lot of, it was a kind of a whirlwind time, you know, suddenly you, you're on the red carpet, but you're worrying about what my arm looks like, that internal misogyny came poking its ugly head and it felt like a whirlwind and it's only in the past few months I've been able to kind of recenter. It was a big change actually, everything, you know, with Alma, you know, it happened and it was like your whole life and your whole reality completely shifts from the personal perspective of losing people that were very important to me, then also just my whole career and everything and... The world around me had changed, so it was kind of readjusting to that, I think.
1: Yeah. Are you able to
2: look back on it now
1: and kind of have perspective on it?
2: I don't think you can say, oh, now I'm fixed, sort of thing. I think I'm still in the midst of processing it, but I'm definitely mm. not in the whirlwind phase that I was when it was all happening at me. So I've had time to go, God, that was mental, wasn't it? You know, and actually put things in place again, which I just felt I didn't have a chance to do in that whirlwind period. It must be
1: mad enough becoming really well-known quickly in any kind of context. When you are writing a series based loosely on the themes that you have experienced in your life, is there surreal moments? Because it is so meta. You know, you just talked about the idea of filming a scene that was based on, you know, your last meal that you had with your grandma and your mum. There must be moments that are very surreal in that context.
2: So when we were filming Alma... My grandmother passed away on the second day. So so we're filming all day, and then my grandma passed away that evening, and then I had to get up the next morning and just go filming all day. And then I got into the makeup chair that morning, like 6am, 7am, whatever. I got loads of texts. It said, oh, you've been nominated for a BAFTA. This is all in the 24 hours. I didn't even know I was up for one, so that was weird. Then I filmed all day. I had to do, like, sex scenes and very intense, and, and there was no kind of, you know, just keep going, keep going, keep going. I think yeah, it was a difficult. That was quite difficult. And then afterwards, I went to go to the secure, medium secure ward where my mum was, to tell her that her mother was dead, and then I had to go straight back to filming the me- next morning. And this is when it got very meta. I-, I was filming a scene with Siobhan Finneran where she was on the lawn, of Grandma's house, um, having a bit of a kind of meltdown. Scene. Yeah. You know, she runs away. And then we went on lunch, and then I got a call from the hospital saying your mum's like absconded; she's she's ran away. And it was like that was like life imitating art, imitating life, and it was just that was bizarre as as a day to be honest. There was another time I'd I'd had a bit of a kind of difficulty with getting to a funeral, and I'd I'd had to say that I need that time off. And one uh, person had had tried to describe me as being volatile, which I hadn't been volatile; I'd just been very clear that I had to have the day Mm -hmm. off. After going to my grandma's funeral, but it was also the day that we were recording the records, around Alma getting rebellious, defiant, and rude. So that was another one he thought, and it was actually one of because I did a care experienced um, voluntary scheme, but well, not voluntary because they got paid. It was a yeah. paid training scheme for care experienced people to be part of the process, and she was the one who would said um, I had to bring this to you because he called you violent and. You know, I've been in the curse system myself and I thought this whole project was about us not being labelled in such negative ways. And, you know, I saw you being assertive with him and saying, I need that day off, but you were not volatile and you were not aggressive. So I had to tell you that this is what he said. Then I went and filmed that scene about her getting her records back, but it was actually great because it really helped the scene. But that was a very weird, again, very strange kind of meta, but also thinking the systems are still problematic, I think, you know even within, you know, structures that are trying to be more sensitive to diversity. But I think the thing is you, you can't be diverse without setting out diverse approaches to things. Don't say, we'll have more diverse people, but you have to now be like us. And the nice thing about that situation
1: is that was your implementation. You wanted to bring in care leavers to work on the show. And it was the care leaver who understood that what he said was not okay. Yeah. And relayed that to you in a really empathetic way.
2: Yeah, she was amazingly articulate how she just explained it to me and what it meant to her to overhear that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. mm, So a bit meta there on two occasions, actually.
1: Well, let's talk now, Sophie, about change. Looking back now, what would you say was the biggest change that you went through as a kid?
2: Well, I think because I was a care experienced young person, you go through a lot of different change, so it's not easy to pin one down. But I suppose the first significant change was being put into foster care from my mother's. Right. Then, you know, obviously I went to a foster parent for a year... So that was a significant change because I was living with a very different family. They were lovely, I lived on a farm for a year, very like Alma. And then the, another significant change, I went to live with my grandmother, you know. And then there was a significant change when we kind of thought about finding my father. Then we then we moved to Bristol for two years. With your grandmother? With my grandmother. And then we moved back to Bolton. And then I had other um, sort of foster placements after mm. that. And then I got my first flat when I was 17. So that whole period, was there was so much change, it's hard to kind of pin it down to one significant change, I'd say.
1: Can you see a pattern in how it's manifested in you and your attitude to change as an adult? Like, do you like to be in one place? This is my awful cod no, psychology no, here. I
2: don't. Yeah, well, I don't know really. I've, I've never felt, oh, that's the place I belong.
1: Yeah, so maybe you're good at change because of that.
2: Yeah, I always think it's a bit mixed, isn't it, with these things. You know, on the one hand... You know, I feel like an alien pretty much everywhere. But then at the yeah. other hand, I think I've been really lucky because I've got to see all different walks of life from a really young age. I've lived in Bolton. I've lived in Bristol. and I've lived in different family homes. So I've seen lots of different ways of people being. I definitely think that added to me wanting to be a writer because you can't help but be more, like, outside and observant.
1: Sure, yeah. Because you're
2: seeing people separately Ooh. from being in a culture. You're outside of the culture. Even if it's a yeah. culture that you initially came from, you've been outside of it and you're trying to make sense of it, I suppose.
1: In all of those years, did you have an advocate who you think believed in you and your talent?
2: I think I've had loads in my life. I mean, my auntie, Miriam is just lovely and has been really sweet. She was really young. She was only like probably 15 or something when I went to live with her, my grandma and her right um and my grandmother oh, wow. so
1: she would have been like a big sister kind yeah of. she
2: was a teenager yeah. really and uh yeah. we had a lodger and it was like this party house for teenagers because grandma was going through a divorce zebra print phase yeah. so it's just always teenagers around that was quite an exciting atmosphere you know music blasting out and first it was yeah. motorbikes and then it was cars on the drive you know so quite exciting yeah. atmosphere grandmother you know she was quite a mixed person but she did really you know love that I love performing and really encouraged me so I think yeah I've had lots really and you know all my foster placements were you know really fairly pleasant and you know I was quite lucky that a lot of them were really positive and teachers I mean I, I had one teacher who nicked my GCSE paper out of a class and took it to my house and said you need to sit this exam because you keep bunking off and, and you're good at English so you get these people come in from different angles don't you
1: Yeah, who see see your potential and, like, yeah, and believe in you. On stage, you know, when you see you do stand-up, you just have such a confidence about you. You know, you, you seem so strong in what you're saying, and I just wonder where that comes from, that ability to be so... It feels, like, sure of yourself. People who take the piss out of themselves, there's an element of strength there that I really admire.
2: Well, I've just always loved performing. I've always felt really confident performing. Perhaps sometimes when I was younger, more confident performing than interacting you know writing things down and getting to the root of things you know for me working things out for myself and humor is just at the base I think of all my family and also with any kind of trauma there's always so much funny we we always know that don't we tragic comedy thing I mean it's so real so I think comedy just felt a really natural space for me to inhabit Mm. so I think that's probably you know where the confidence comes from with it really.
1: Was there a moment when you started writing that you kind of you started to understand yourself in a way that you never had before.
2: I don't know, really. I started writing almost Alan Bennett-style monologues because I loved Alan Bennett and Grandma um, loved Alan Bennett, so I did those sorts of things. I laugh, actually, because I, I went to stay with one of Grandma's friends, Christine. She was called Lovely Woman. Anyway, Grandma used to do this thing. She'd pick up the phone. Yeah. She'd yabber on for hours and then she'd put the phone and go, oh, God, she doesn't stop talking her. Anyway, I did a like a performance of grandmother, or it must have been based on it was clearly grandma, but I did it to Christine,
1: yeah. and it was
2: basically me repeating everything grandma had said. Oh, Christine, she don't go on. She's always looking for a man, Christine. I tell you what, she done not <laughs> go on. And Christine was like, "All oh, right, okay, very good." I always laugh at that. Yeah, but in terms of knowing myself, I think you're always on that journey, aren't you? As a writer, mm-hmm. and you know, discovering more inside and outside of writing, aren't you? As you're going on.
1: Yeah. So we interviewed Lem Mm Sisse on this podcast and I was looking back at the conversation that we had because, I mean, you share the experiences of being in care together and the experiences of getting your records back. Now, again, I only know this from what you've talked about on stage and and what I've seen on Alma, but it feels like getting those records was a kind of seismic thing in terms of understanding what other people felt about who you were or what you were to them. yeah. Um, And not very fun.
2: No, well, uh, there's lots of positives in my records as well, actually. But they're very intense. Obviously, there's a lot of labels. Mm. And I think that show on record, if you're talking about kind of getting to know yourself, was a really positive one because it was about reclaiming negative language that I've had said about me or that I perhaps have about myself. So I remember writing a whole list on a wall of, you know, starting with shame. You know, what are the things I'm most ashamed of? Then then my records came later and there was some loads of crossovers. And that's the great thing with comedy. When you talk yeah. about your flaws, which all comedians do, mm. you know, there's a real ability to make a room full of people laugh with you at things that are your flaws. You know, so that's quite an empowering thing, isn't it? And you get to mm. reclaim them and it, you know it, it you do realise how political it is as well the language that you have with yourself you know it, it does come from somewhere and often it goes beyond just family members doesn't it it goes it, it can be more identity political and
1: yeah systemic yeah mm, mm, mm. and one of the things Lem said about reading his records was just what a low opinion they all had of him like They yeah. they, just, they had such low standards of who he could be as a human being.
2: Well, he had a di- more difficult time than me, yeah. as yeah. did a few people of that age group, because there was a law that was changed. I think it was, I can't remember, but it was halfway through my records, actually. Right. But basically, the impact it had on social workers is always right as if these records will be read by the individual. So you were allowed access to them. I mean, I know people who were, you know, in the 50s and 60s who got the records back and they just... Absolutely horrendous what they've said. I mean there's yeah. a few things amid there with mine which are infuriating, and you know don't feel that kind, or I can see what they've done to family members, and you know it was definitely a traumatic experience to get my records back, but I didn't have the extent of what someone like Lem would experience, and and for Lem as well in Wigan. You know, and the racial element as well, I yeah. think, you know, made it even yeah. worse. And the time, meaning that they could just say anything in that record, you know. Yeah, absolutely. The viewpoint was changing, you know, still a lot to be desired, you know, but mm. it was getting better at, at the time I was, ha- I was being recorded, I suppose. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, I mean, it must be a very strange situation to read about yourself and your family from the perspective of these different people, but... How has your perspective of family changed, I suppose?
2: I think Lem's got a great quote. He says uh, I something, oh, I'll probably mess it up now, but he says, have family is a group of people who see the same memory differently. And I thought yeah. that just sums it up, doesn't it, really?
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, it's changed a lot for me because I've had times where i felt like I have had no family. You know, and felt very like an orphan, orphan Annie over it. You know, I felt, mm. felt very like that, you know, Christmas is on my own or... That feeling like completely alone in the world that mm. I think only a current experienced person can really understand its a very unique experience, sure. yeah, and then I've felt other times in my life where I've thought, oh, there is sort of people resurfacing, and then I've felt times like fucking hell, i just I just wish they were not here at all, so yeah, I've had a real mix really, I've had that kind of you know I think as as my life has changed, you know it's been interesting to see who's been around and not been around you know, at different times, you know. When you've got a kind of family that's had its issues, I think it always is in constant flux and change and, you know, it evolves, doesn't it?
1: doing what you do now. Yeah. Would you mind telling me about the time when you were in Salford flyering BBC producers? Oh, well, yeah. Like, where were you at then?
2: Well, I was working in theatre. I used to make theatre. I set up a theatre company called uh, Eggs Collective, um, got lots of funding for it. Then I went solo. I was kind of producing as well, so I was producing kind of big outreach projects with a producer called Oliver Sykes, and we were doing that. And then I just heard this media city was opening up. I thought, fabulous. And I thought, you know what? I need to live near it just so I can see it every day and just have a bit of, you know, broaden your horizons a bit. Have it in your vicinity. And then I used to go down and fly a BBC producers and there was this event on where they were going to do a talk. So I took flyers and flyed all of them, really. And there was one producer who just kind of... She was a small northern woman who just seemed to really get it. And... uh, she came to see a show and she said, come and, you know, share a couple of ideas with us if you want. I came with flip chart paper, stuck it on the walls. <laughs> I had a plan. I, it went quite wild. And then that got commissioned, the, the episode. It was the first Alma's Not Normal. That so was that's what you came with, the
1: pilot episode of Alma, Alma's Not Normal. So that's what you came with.
2: Well, I came with all these ideas for the series. Right. And then you. we kind of, you know, worked up a treatment and then, I, and then she commissioned a script, yeah, that was kind of based on that, yeah. Wow.
1: How did you get from, you know, being a kid who bunked off school and doing one GCSE, like you said, that your teacher persuaded you to do, to then being this theatre producer and, like, being so busy in that world?
2: I just kept cracking on, really. So I I went to to live with Auntie Miriam for a year in Wigan. I worked in TK Maxx and Subway. I would have been about 20. I met my dad that same year for the first time. Wow. And then I, I I, kept Googling. I kept trying to get quite serious about it, going, right, just spend a day a week where you Google all creative opportunities and, and see what comes up. And, and I found this thing, Contact Theatre in Manchester, right. an open audition, or you apply to audition, but it's free. Yeah. And it's a young actors company. And I went to that. And that was the beginning for me where everything changed when I went to Contact Theatre. So I would have been like 20 by then. And uh, I joined the theatre company. You know, so I learnt a lot then. I had a real drive. And then I, I got in touch with... There was a woman called Liz O'Neill who runs Zed Arts now. And she said, right, you need to get cash match funding, supporting kind, a partnership with a theatre and a proposal. So that's what I did. Yeah. can set up a theatre company. And then... So it kind of just spiralled from there, really. But Contact was a brilliant hub for that. I think there was a certain kind of punky energy back then if you could just go in a venue sit down with a fundraiser or a producer and say, what do I do? And mm. I, I loved that. You know, it was fabulous.
1: So looking back now, what would you say would be the biggest change you've been through as an adult?
2: Biggest change? I don't know. I'm in one at the minute. So it's hard oh, yeah. to... Well, well yeah, you mean because as
1: in with the success? with Yeah, the... and yeah. BAFTAs
2: and TV. And... So that's been a massive one. But I suppose, yeah, probably going to contact theatre was probably the biggest change that set me off on my life's path. Yeah, I don't know. I think you have little ones. You have these kind of milestones, don't you, that change everything and set you off. And you're always going towards those directions anyway, I find...
1: I used to have, like, a plan in my head where, like, I need to do this in the next five years. I want to be here. Like, I want to be on Radio 1 by the time I'm 26 and uh, Were you like that or...?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've always been quite interested in going, you know, do a 10-year, 5-year, 2-year, 1-year plan, which I haven't done for a few years, actually. But Okay, good. You know, having a big plan. You know, I've always wanted to write for screen. I've always wanted to do a sitcom. You know, always there were certain things I just really wanted to do. I wanted to act. I loved Julie Walters when I was a kid. Like, I'm, mm. uh, you know, I really wanted that <laughs> wooden Walters. And I love all that. So yeah. I think I always knew this was, for me, what I was supposed to, to do. Yeah. You know.
1: So you've had the change. Yeah. You know, congratulations on the success. It's just incredible. The BAFTA speech was just amazing you could just oh, see thanks. the joy radiating out of you and talking about your grandma it must have been so mad and just such a whirlwind oh, of emotions
2: me? yeah <laughs> yeah mad yeah but
1: how do you feel like things have changed since then in terms of how people approach you want to work with you like all of it that is different, isn't
2: it I mean because you're a hot girl like... Alma, yeah before Alma they were starting to you change. Yeah and you forget how hard it was to convince people that you were intelligent. Right. I, mean, I used to find it really difficult. You know you'd have theatre producers saying you just you know there's always a joke and you know I'm not sure trying... you're very bubbly. Or, you know whatever. And I felt like I always had to prove yeah that I was intelligent and I had a strategy and I had a plan and I you know I was mm. political minded was now I think that the proofs in the pudding and I can you know I don't have to prove that so harshly. Mm. and so that's nice I mean it's just like being a white middle class man isn't it it's been fabulous <laughs> no I questions I shop at m and people <laughs> give you f- free space and, and say yes to you I mean things have changed
1: <laughs> and now that you have a, you're on the front foot you know people are going to endorse you because you have this experience of success are you wanting to change I mean you already were doing it with the series one of Amber, but are you wanting to change how you work and kind of try and do things differently than how you see it being done in the industry
2: I think that's always been a passion for me, yeah, is yeah. make it just, you know, more inclusive and doing it in a more kind of thorough way, you know, changing this idea of normal and diverse and actually going, there's nothing normal about how we're doing this, so let's open up how we're doing it and let, let's let be taught by different voices about how mm. we do things rather than go, we'll let you in and you have to get on our page. You know, I think I'd like that to be over. So, you know, and just, I think, oversaturating the industry with all these neurodiverse or whatever you want to call it Mm. about people that have just had different experiences Mm. so that actually there's no sense of normal, this is the normal way of doing things. Mm. Because I think that normal, which I've obviously clearly been obsessed with because it's in all my work, but I think that that status quo normal thing is is kind of a danger zone in everything, really.
1: You can apply it to education, you can apply it to... So much systemic stuff, can't you? Definitely
2: schools. I mean, I was always Mm. really fidgety in class when I attended, if I did. You know, I was always dead fidgety. Even when I was little, apparently, I used to just get up and walk around the room. The teacher go, what are you doing? I need to stretch my legs. And I think this certain way, this is the only way that we teach.
1: Yeah.
2: And you have to fit this box. It's so kind of restrictive for everybody, isn't it? Mm. I remember we played Wink Wink Murder once. And, you know, you, they wink you and you die. And I remember thinking, oh, I've got to be dead now for half an hour. So I just put up a sign when I was about eight. Just said, dead. Be right back or whatever. And then I just went off. Dead. Off. You couldn't stay still that long. No, because everyone's different, aren't they? Everyone's, you know... Yeah, I and mean, there's no such thing as normal. As yeah. yeah,
1: it's mad, isn't it? And, like, just yeah. the, the toxicity of that word, you know, forcing people to fit into a box.
2: And I think we're getting better with it. There's not a much stigma around mental health or mental diversity. Yeah. But it is still there. And I think there's a lack of understanding of people's experiences needing to be factored in. And
1: since you've been working with Care Leavers and having initiatives where they're involved in your work and getting paid properly and getting real experience of the industry, have you seen kind of how that has changed these kids coming through and how that has helped them?
2: Well, yeah, and how they help you. I mean, we did the Stories of Care thing that I set up with Oliver Sykes, and it was about basically getting young people who care experienced, adults, to write uh, effective memory-styled fiction for children in an anthology. And this is our second one. You know, the stories are beautiful. I mean, the talent's yeah. amazing. So being yeah. able to kind of support that and be part of that is fantastic. And, and Lem, I suppose, it was a big changer because he, he, he made the Kerr experience. I'm, I'm sure there were other people, but for me, he's one of the absolute lighthouses yeah. of people that made the Kerr experience political Mm. And it's really important to have it politicised because actually then it stops being the individual's problem. I mean, I got called a problem child a lot and actually it's quite a universal thing that for co-experienced people. Rather than looking at the system and society and, you know, collective responsibility, Mm. we go the problem, the problem child, rather than Mm. the problem situation. How do we Mm. make it better? And I think, you know, LEM's kind of out there with his experience when it was not a political thing. Yeah, You know, really helped a rising, I think, of care experienced people to feel pride, really, in our experience.
1: Yeah. Um, he he said something about that the most institutionalised people of all are the staff in the care homes. You know, they're so institutionalised. I remember that being quite a striking thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, you see it in my mum's and, 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 well, all of it. And, and also care workers in whatever area, they're really struggling because of the cuts. And, yeah you know, then you can't get people as qualified a lot of the time in, in terms of hospitalizations, the hospitalisations, mm. the night stuff. And, you know, the, the system is broken. And I think that needs a yeah. bit acknowledged. knowledge. I think what I'm chuffed with with Alma is, you know, I've been really struggling with my mum's uh, set up recently and, and certain hospital incidents and how that is managed and the people managing it and the cuts and the system and just thinking, how the fuck do we get empathy back in this system? Yeah. Can you teach empathy? Because it doesn't feel like the people, some of the people in it are not, don't have it. Some of them have loads of it and they're amazing. Some of them don't have it at all and they're not being taught it either. So there's yeah. a lack of training in it and empathy and understanding. I had more education in the drama triangle, I'm okay, you're okay. All these things. I've trained myself up. I've learned all the tools because I've had to. Yeah. But yeah, yeah you're dealing with coworkers workers sometimes that you think, I wouldn't trust you on a night out having a ciggy and a deep conversation with you. Never mind my vulnerable mother. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I just think... And then actually what the great thing with Alma was is when I did that episode about the records... That started being shown now in universities all around the country for social services and stuff. They've just been doing it. Wow. It's showing up all the time, and that, for me, is really fabulous. It's the most exciting thing that's come out of Alma, because actually that desire that I had that felt really intangible to kind of have some input in in putting empathy into the training system of the social Mm. services Mm. is actually happening. I thought it was never really that tangible, you know, for the arts to have an impact politically or professionally Mm. but I think it actually is which is fabulous to hear it's so fabulous I had no Mm. idea so so those people are being taught how to well they're being seen that perspective and I think that's a great perspective you know rather than the whole you know if they read any literature they often any stuff I think there's a new perspective and you know I think you need that I think you really need creative approaches
1: yeah
2: semi-autobiographical creative approaches that are not clinical. So we see the full person, because that's often what gets missed in all these records, is you don't see the full person, you see a subject yeah. matter that's flawed.
1: Where was it I saw you saying, like, or someone saying, if they talked about how funny you were,
2: yeah, if they talked about else. how yeah.
1: bright or optimistic or ambitious or, yeah, you know, all, all these things that you don't see written in there, it's all the bad
2: things. And it's all very clinical, and they sound so hopeless in that yeah. clinical way. Yeah. And actually just, you know, being able to go... You are a flawed person, of course you are. But if you were to psychoanalyze anybody's flaws and just put that as their personality description, then, you know, their life would look pretty hopeless. I think it's about yeah. seeing all of it.
1: Another thing, again, that shocked me on reading Lem's book, and this might not have applied to you, but just the idea of these kids being criminalized. Like mm. literally 16, they're children, yeah, yeah. and they're being criminalized to be reported to the police for yeah. something that is not a criminal offense. But because mm. they're in this institution, they're given this. In like the system, shortcut yeah. straight to that was really shocking as well.
2: Yeah, I think you see that a lot actually. Yeah,
1: Sophie, how is it for you then writing these scenes that involve people based on your family? You know, like sad stuff, there's some really sad stuff in, in Alma, but done in, in such a beautiful way that is not kind of sentimental or overly pulling on your heartstrings, it's done in a very real way, which makes it even more impactful. But how does it affect you, I suppose, when you're writing these things and seeing them being played out and playing them as well because you're obviously starring in it?
2: Well, I think they can be very intense. You know, sometimes it's really brilliant and cathartic and brings you full of joy and energy. Other times you think, "Oh, that was a difficult scene to write, like the one where Alma gets her records back. I've done stand-up on that before. Yeah. But the difference with stand-up is you're presenting something that's past. So you're like, this happened... Was actually writing a scene, going that moment when you got your records, when you sat down, when you put them on the floor. How did you feel? And you had to get them out, and you peeled up a piece of paper. You sat in it, like you're literally revisiting it, like doing some sort of, you know, visualization kind of, yeah, therapy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that had a big impact, and I was shocked about that because I thought, well, I did a forty day tour of this show and thirty days at Edinburgh. I thought this would be fine, but actually, yeah, that had quite an impact. But look, I've got a good therapist, so that's helpful. I was going to say,
1: do you, I mean, you must have to put things in place to protect yourself or to kind yeah. of bolster your, yourself when you're doing that work,
2: yeah. Definitely, yeah. 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 Has and therapy helped? Good. We talk yeah. a lot
1: about therapy on this podcast.
2: Yeah, well, I'm going to be talking about it in Alma, the second series, actually, because it's right. been a big part of my journey. And this therapist is great. I've had him two and a half years now, or maybe three, actually. Anyway, it turns out he's quite experienced.
1: No which way. I've only just
2: found out recently. I felt really at ease with him in a very different way. Yeah. But he's a male therapist, which is my first male therapist, which mm. from a family of, you know, traumatised women, I think that's quite helpful. Mm. And uh, also he's care experienced, so that's been really interesting. And yeah. he's so intelligent. And again, you know, that thing about his superpower, he always says about the the double edge of what we find difficult and what is our superpower, which mm. Lamb talks about as the superhero thing he has a superpower at what he does because he has had that experience, I think. Yeah. He's got an intuition and then he's educated himself on top of it, you know. So yeah. I think it's always about the combination, isn't it? The life experience and then the self education or whatever you do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know And and you couldn't really like select a therapist on the basis of them being a caregiver. Like that's yeah. so serendipitous, isn't it, that you yeah. found someone yeah. who ends up having the same or similar experiences to you.
2: Yeah. I think it is really really uncanny.
1: There's a quote, I was watching Jade Adams, your amazing co-star in Alma. And
2: Strictly Come Dancing star.
1: Yeah. She's
2: smashing Um, it, isn't she? It's fabulous.
1: She's amazing. And she said in one of her stand-ups, stand-up isn't stand-up unless you inflict change upon your audience.
2: Yeah, oh, that's lovely. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would, yeah. I think storytelling isn't storytelling unless you inflict change upon your audience, yeah. Yeah. Stand-up would fit into that. Yeah, I think that's very true.
1: And do you have aspirations, I mean, you hinted at it before, before you start a project, of what kind of change you want to inflict? Like, what messages do you need to hammer home to those people that will see your work?
2: Well, I always think not, not so much messages and hammering home because then it's a bit like preaching.
1: And that sounds a bit aggressive.
2: Yeah, yeah. like, these <laughs> bastards need to learn, you know. But it might just be that you get the opportunity to connect with young people who occur experience to feel... Mm a connection i think connection is change that moment you feel yeah. oh god yes yeah, someone gets that oh god they've been through that as well that's a lovely feeling and moment of change um i had that when i watched lamb sissy i was like oh my god what well, you can t- he's talking about being in care i've not been telling anyone about that i can do that so that was a moment of change for me mm. or you know a social worker being laughed at in a fun loving and also kind of challenging way That, for me, is a moment of change because I hope in all that they're not being victimised, targeted. You are bad. It's looking at it as a whole. And and, and so they're a bit like you would with a family member going, let's have a laugh here, you know, the stereotypes, but also the the kind of what they're going through on their own. So I hope there's elements of change like that. and, And I think also it's just seeing people, isn't it, on screen that you've not seen before, hearing from people you've not heard from before. That's always where the change is. You know, seeing a grandmother and mother and Alma talk about things that we've seen in so many screen things, but from a different perspective, from a different yeah. experience.
1: Yeah, it's a very powerful moment at the end of the series where Alma's grandma talks very honestly about being a mum and how much mm. it didn't feel right.
2: Yeah, well, I wanted that, yeah, because yeah, so women powerful. are never allowed to talk about these things, are they? Right.
1: Yeah and you it's know. so common I think it's just there's so many secrets isn't there among women so many secrets yeah. that get kind of hushed you know after a few yeah. drinks in the pub or kind of yeah. you know spoken yeah. of quite but so rarely spoken out like that so so many women will connect with that
2: yeah so I think that for me the connection is where change happens feeling mm-hmm. connected I don't think change happens when we feel targeted and attacked I don't think that Works mm. for me. I think, you know, that thing I'm obsessed with is the Drama Triangle, which I sent to Jade. I said, don't be offended by this book because it does say how to break free from a victim complex. I said, but it's just, it's changed my life and it's really thin, so it's a dead good read, you know.
1: The Drama Triangle. I'm yeah, like How to trendy. Break Free
2: from the Drama Triangle, but it's brilliant because it talks mm. about the rescuer, the victim, and the persecutor. My therapist mm. gave it me. And uh, when there's been trauma, we set out in these very unhealthy social patterns where yeah. everybody's fighting for the role of victim and family members going to victim, rescuer and persecutor. And they flick and they change all the time. Yeah. Rescuers, this need to take control to try and save everybody, but can also be a very undermining role. Mm. You know, you're basically saying, you're not okay, I'm okay, I'll help. Or victim is going, I'm not okay and you're okay. Why? Why? I need help. Yeah. And then persecutors, I'm not okay, you're not okay. So, you know, so yeah. And that dynamic plays out loads in, mm. in, in families, which I, I actually use in Alma a lot, when the three women are together, the, the intergenerational, you know, the grandma, mum and Alma, you can see them playing it all out. But then I yeah. think it happens on a political scale. You know, I think about like things like Black Lives Matter, when that happened, everybody in state of panic going into I'm not okay, you're not okay, rather than going... Do you know what? We're all okay here, but yeah, there's a system that needs to change here, and we need to take responsibility. And I've made certain mistakes as a white person, but I am okay, and you're okay. But I need to make certain changes, or you know, the white man who jumps up and says, "You're not okay." I'm, you know, the savior complex, the rescuer, the angry white person who can't accept it. You know, you get it in all dynamics. Yeah, and actually, and when anyone's feeling attacked and in a state of like that. I don't think you're getting anywhere. I Mm. think when we go, right, let's evaluate this system, you know, that's why Twitter's a very toxic place, Mm. isn't it, for these debates? You know, as I think with Alma wanting to kind of go, these are areas I think could do with some change, but this is not an attack on social workers or an attack on men.
1: No, I mean, I think that's why Alma's so clever because there's no binary opinions about anything in, in Alma. Everything is funny. Everything is nuanced which is I life. I
2: hope so, yeah. And uh, <laughs> the sex work particularly, Yeah, you know, both Leanne and Alma behave badly in that, I think. You know, she says, I thought you'd understand because you're always shagging about. So she slut her and, so, and then Leanne turns around and says, oh, so that makes me a prostitute, as if that's a negative thing. And, mm. you know, it's really complicated. Is it empowering? Is it not empowering? Well, both can coexist, can't they? So, mm.
1: Mm. yeah. The conversation Alma has with, with her best mate in the thing yeah. is so brilliant because that's clearly you having worked that out in your head and you're able to kind of put that into the thing and say, I just want to be able to talk about it and have a laugh about it and not be judged.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I think that's the key, isn't it? Rather than... Because some things are over-politicised. It's great to politicise things like her experience to an extent, but some things become so politicised that you don't even have a say in something that you're experiencing because everybody on Radio 4 has got an opinion Well, can I ask
1: you about that? I wanted to ask you about, like, feminism and kind of the intersection of feminism and class Mm. and how there's a kind of elitism within feminism maybe where there's a certain type of feminism that's kind of normal.
2: Yeah. I think that's getting a bit better recently. In the last few years, I've seen it get less classist. Yeah. But I think for a long time it's been extremely classist. You know, it's been very much, you know, posh white women have got their opinions and, and mm. you don't really fit into that box and I felt that a lot and that's why I wrote about that in my second Edinburgh stand-up show in Edinburgh, in Branded a bit about, you know, women setting the ideals for everybody based on what's been possible for them and they're very different for other people but I think that feels like it's getting a bit better.
1: Yeah well I think as well it's just, it's more voices being heard, more gatekeepers mm. that aren't the same, more yeah. shows like Alma. Yeah you know, yeah, I've been it's looking. At that. Yeah. Last question: If you could make a change to your own life or the world around you right now, Ugh. and this is so vast, and I apologize, what would it be?
2: God, I mean, this week alone with trust and everything, I don't know what. It, I don't know where to start with that. I know it's a fucking mess, isn't it? <laughs> sorry to be blunt. You probably have to beat me. No, out, we
1: can curse on this podcast. It's oh. incredible.
2: Yeah, it's it's just. I, I, what would you do? I, do you know actually? what I've
1: I've found that I'm 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 so bad at maths, yeah, right? Or yeah. anything with regards to a budget, I'm like my eyes glaze over. I just don't understand the language yeah, yeah. of economics. No, so neither, yeah. I know that she's floundering and the world's fucked, but I couldn't tell you at all why.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean I think that's just been it for years, hasn't it? Yeah, the floundering and it's fucked, but we don't actually quite understand what's happening.
1: Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, um, I wish this writing process to be thank inspired you. and fun and actually like enjoyable and can't wait to see the fruits mm. of it. Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much, Sophie. It was such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you,
2: you too. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you so, so much to Sophie. I really enjoyed that conversation with her. And yeah, please do go watch Alma's Not Normal. It's on iPlayer now, re-release for one month. And let us know what you thought of Sophie and share the episode around as well. We are releasing episodes every Monday. So please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. And give us a rating too where you can. That is always so appreciated. Also, I get a lot of people asking to watch these episodes with subtitles. And I just wanted to highlight that we do do a transcription of each episode of Changes on my website. So there's a link on the show notes. If you know anyone who might benefit from that, who likes to read the words as well as hear them, or just read them if they're hard of hearing, then go to anniemcmanus.com and you will find the transcriptions there. Or as I said, there's a link on the show notes. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thank you so much and see you next week.